the Reformation discovery was this. With all your sin, whether much or little, you can be justified and reconciled to this almighty and all-holy God just as you are. Father, we pray that you will now open your word to our minds and our hearts, and our minds and our hearts to your word. We pray that for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, tonight we've been uh, using the 1662 Book uh, of Common Prayer evening uh, service, and uh, this year that is, of course, particularly appropriate, as it is the 300 and 50th anniversary of that 1662 prayer book, whose theology at law is still defining the doctrine of uh, the Church of England. But tonight I want us to think about, first of all, its wider context. There's a, a fundamental biblical command to remember God's dealings with his people in past history and not to forget them. Yes, that refers, first and foremost, to the dealings of God uh, that you read about in the Bible. But it's good regularly to remind ourselves of how God has blessed us in the past during our own post-biblical history. One such time in Europe was undoubtedly in the 16th and uh, 17th centuries and the period of the Reformation. Uh, its starting point was in Germany uh, at the beginning of the 16th century with Luther. Uh, its end point in England can be said to be 1662 with the final edition of uh, Cranmer's Book of Common Prayer. And uh, this contains Cranmer's ordinal for ordaining clergy uh, and the uh, Church of England's 39 Articles of Religion uh, as well as the main prayer book. True, in 1662, there were slight changes to Cranmer's original book of 1552 and his original 42 articles reduced to 39. However, the final product uh, was a result of Cranmer's God-given genius. Yet, uh, few people today know much about Cranmer and uh, indeed the Reformation. Few children are taught about that period in our schools. But uh, the Reformation was so important and did a great amount of good. And there are still lessons from it for today. Some people may be embarrassed by it and don't want to remember it because it was dealing with religious controversies. And uh, in an age when every belief has to be affirmed, such controversies seem to many to be off limits. But that means too few today can thank God not only for his delivering us from certain evils in this country, uh, but also for the good they have inherited and can enjoy. Now, of course, you must face reality. Uh, you do not have to say that all the reformers were saints or that uh, everything they said was right. Far from it. Henry VIII 
Edward VI and Elizabeth I all had their faults, uh, but God still used them as he used imperfect rulers in biblical times, such as Nebuchadnezzar and Cyrus in the Old Testament. And uh, the Reformation leaders like Luther, uh, Calvin and Cranmer also had their faults, as we all have. But God still used them. And sadly, many of their Protestant successors have quite drifted away from their apostolic and truly Catholic faith. They have embraced multi-faithism and sexual revisionism, where some successors of their Roman opponents are more faithful. But overall, the Reformation meant great gain. At the beginning of the 16th century, there was a visible church in this country and unlike today, with no shortage of clergy or money. But clergy and money do not make a living church if it's forgotten the gospel. And that was the case then, although you have to be careful about apportioning blame. For so many clergy had themselves not heard or been taught the gospel. Why? Because in simple terms, it was a church, in effect, without the Bible. There were a few copies around of Wycliffe's translation of the Vulgate, that's the old Latin translation of the Bible. Apart from that, there were no English Bibles anywhere. So people not knowing Latin had no chance to know whether what was being taught and done in the churches related to the truth as Jesus and the apostles taught it and that you read um, in the Bible. The reality was that uh, much of clergy time was spent in saying Latin masses, repeating Latin prayers, chanting Latin hymns, which few could understand, and hearing confessions and taking money to get the dead out of purgatory. And there was little preaching. Some hard evidence of what was going on comes from Bishop Hooper and the then rich diocese of Gloucester. When he was the first appointed bishop in 1551, he found that out of 311 clergy, 168 were unable to repeat the Ten Commandments, 33 did not know where to find them in the Bible, 39 could not tell where the Lord's Prayer was written, and 34 did not know who was the author of the Lord's Prayer. So with clergy like that, you should not be surprised at a great deal of ignorance and uh, superstition among ordinary people. But what was the good from the Reformation? Well, after at least three things. First, there came, at last, the English Bible. Nor did that come without a struggle. Uh, sometime before Cranmer began his work, Fox, in his uh, Book of Martyrs, tells us that in 1519, Six men and a woman were burned at Coventry for teaching their children the Lord's Prayer and the Ten Commandments in English. And the charge was not the possession of a Bible, but of possessing an English Bible. It was trying to get the Bible out in England in English after he translated it that cost Tyndale his life. But thank God the Bible did get out eventually, and when it was read, it was discovered, as uh, Cranmer put it in Article 6, Holy Scripture containeth all things necessary to salvation. And that, of course, was a threat to the religious establishment 
in many ways. So the availability of the Bible was, in English, was the first great good of the Reformation. Secondly comes the rediscovered good news of the Bible's teaching about the grace of God. It was now seen that forgiveness and getting right with God did not depend on your confession to a priest or on praying to some saint or by penances. As Cranmer put it in Article 11, we are accounted righteous before God only for the merit of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ, by faith, and not for our own works or deservings. And that was the message of justification by faith. Then thirdly, there was a recovery of a true Christian worship. No longer were congregations just passive spectators. Cramer wrote in Article 24, it is a thing plainly repugnant to the word of God and the custom of the primitive church to have public prayer in the church or to minister the sacraments in a tongue not understanded of the people. So now in every parish church there was an English Bible that people could understand when it was read. And uh, with a prayer book also in English they could now join in meaningfully the prayers and the responses and the singing. So how therefore we should thank God for the Reformation. Well, so much by way of background. For the rest of our time tonight, I want us to look at one specific feature of Cramer's prayer book that embraces the essentials of this recovered biblical theology. And it is his use of Psalm 95, we uh, said that together earlier, which in uh, the first edition of his prayer book uh, was to be said at every morning service. Every Sunday morning, uh, people would have heard that, and during the week indeed. He obviously saw it as important. It conditioned his thinking. It should condition ours. So will you turn now, if you can, uh, to that psalm in your Bibles? Um, share if you need to. It's page uh, 602 uh, uh, of the Bibles, and if you want an outline of where we're going and uh, some space to uh, jot any notes, you've got that on the back page of your service sheet. And you'll see that I'm using for headings Cranmer's own words from, uh, we heard in the introduction uh, to our service tonight, uh, there on the top of page two of the service sheets. For there Cranmer uh, reminds us of what we should be doing when we assemble and meet together. Uh, he follows Psalm 95. So my headings are that, in Cramner's words, we meet first to set forth God's most worthy praise. Secondly, humbly to acknowledge our sins before God and to render, render thanks for the great benefits we have received at his hands. And thirdly, to hear his most holy word. So first, we meet to set forth God's most worthy praise. Look at uh, verses 1 to 5 of Psalm 95. Come, let us sing for, the, for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. For the Lord is the great God, the great King above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it. 
and his hands formed the dry land. The reformers knew what was a mark of a true believer. Uh, they had uh, rediscovered uh, Paul's teaching in Romans chapter 1. Romans 1, uh, and particularly verses 16 and 17, were for them fundamental. Uh, Paul there in Romans 1, 16 and 17 says this, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. First to the, for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. But then Paul uh, says that people suppress the truth even though they know it to some degree. And they do not worship God. This is verses 22 to 21 of Romans 1. Let me read them to you. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. For although they knew God they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. So worship is a fundamental mark of the true believer. That is why you should sing with joy and make a loud noise, according to the psalmist. But that mustn't only be an enjoyable emotional experience. You are to have a rational worship and use your mind as well as your emotions. The motive for enjoyment must not just be the beat of the music or a sound of a choir, an organ echoing in the rafters, whichever is your choice. This psalm provides rational reasons for our joy in worship. Now these great reasons are in verses 3 and 4, namely that the Lord, uh, when you have it capitals, that is, uh, Jehovah or Yahweh, the Lord is Lord of all. He is the sovereign over all, things seen and unseen, as the psalmist explains. And he is the creator of all. His hands form the dry land and all else. And he is the sustainer of all. For in his hands are the depths of the earth and everything else created. So when we meet together, we are to set forth God's most worthy praise. Secondly, we are humbly to acknowledge our sins before God and to render thanks for the great benefits we have received at his hands. Uh, look at verses 6 and 7 now of Psalm 95. Come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker, for he is our God and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. Well, how was this understood in 1552 uh, by Cranmer and the other reformers? Well, first they knew that the writer of the epistle to the Hebrews saw Psalm 95 as so relevant for Christian believers. You see that in uh, chapter 3 uh, and 4 of Hebrews. Yes, our reformers knew that the Lord is the great creator God as all the Jews had known when this psalm was uh, first written. He literally was the rock on which everything else uh, in every area of life needs to be constructed and built. 
But our reformers had discovered it a new way as they read their New Testaments in uh, Erasmus's new Greek edition, uh, that he was indeed the rock of our salvation. He was not just out there in the galaxies of space. He can also be our God, and we can be his sheep that he shepherds as the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. However, they also knew, as the ancient Jews knew, that God was not just great in his power, but also great in his holiness. And they knew that all the good you do is never good enough to justify you before such a holy God. But the Reformation discovery was this. With all your sin, whether much or little, you can be justified and reconciled to this almighty and all-holy God, just as you are. Uh, warts and all, to quote uh, Oliver Cromwell, the uh, 17th century Puritan. The uh, final judgment, as it were, can be brought forward in time to the present. For Christ has already paid the ultimate penalty for your sin in your place by his death. So by faith and union with him, the risen and reigning Lord, you can be treated by God as righteous. As you trust Christ, so to speak, you come under the cloak of Christ's righteousness. It isn't that faith in Christ helps you to become good, so that then God can reward you for your righteousness, such as it is. No. You are first treated as righteous when still unrighteous. And on that basis, you can then start to improve and live as God intends. And the mystery of it all is that it all starts with God. He gives you that faith in the first place. And that's why you have to be thankful for all the benefits you have received. Now, Ephesians 2, uh, verses 8 to 10, puts this so clearly. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. So God is not rewarding your faith. Faith is not a virtue. It's simply an opening of the eyes to the greatness and uh, the love of God and with an obedient uh, commitment that follows. Cranmer took seriously... 1 John verse four, uh, chapter 4, verse 19, that says, We love because he, that's God, first loved us. Cramer believed that the glory of God was his love for the unworthy. And uh, when understood, uh, he saw that this inspires grateful human love through which you serve other people. By contrast, he saw that the medieval teaching on having to be worthy of salvation before God accepts you produces two results. One is pride in thinking you are worthy, or two, despair in thinking you never can be worthy. But Cranmer and the Reformers also knew that this side of heaven, no one would be perfect. John's first epistle teaches that also. 
So when we come together, it should not be all joy and shouting. Uh, rather, there need to be quiet times when we humbly kneel before the Lord our Maker and confess our sins. And then forgiven, we must thank God that we can come to him as our God and as the flock under his care through all that Christ has achieved at Calvary. And being thankful for that love, as Cranmer saw so clearly, we should be motivated to love others. So when we meet, we are humbly to acknowledge our sins before God and to render thanks for the great benefits we have received at his hands. But thirdly, uh, and finally, we are to hear his most holy word. Uh, now look at uh, Psalm 95 and the end of verse 7 to verse 11. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Massa in the desert, where your fathers tested and tried me, though they had seen what I did. For 40 years I was angry with that generation. I said, they are a people whose hearts go astray, and they have not known my ways. So I declared on uh, oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. It's amazing, but these words were cut off from this psalm in a revision of the prayer book in uh, 1928. Fortunately, Parliament refused to authorise that 1928 prayer book. For these verses are vital. They teach you that God is a God of judgment, even in this life. So you cannot mess with God. This uh, testing or trying of God refers to being dissatisfied with God when he doesn't do miracles for, when, for you when you want and when you, he lets you go through tough times. That's the reference to those Old Testament incidents. Then you can doubt him and harden your heart. The writer to the Hebrews, referring to these verses of uh, Psalm 95 in Hebrews 3 and uh, 12 to 13, says this. See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. One who needs to hear those words tonight, or who has never really turned to and started trusting in the living God, but as you heard in our New Testament lesson, God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. And a true believer in Christ has a renewed heart. So if you are a believer, do not let it be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. And do not kid yourself that it is reasonable to doubt God in difficult times. As Cramner studied the Bible, he saw that the heart, the essential you, is so important. For he saw that what the heart desires, the will chooses, and the mind then rationalizes. And that is why, if you are to hear God's word in biblical preaching or uh, directly from the Bible, you must not harden your heart. So as you come to church or as you read the Bible, probably pray that God, by his Holy Spirit, will soften your heart to hear his word. Well, uh, time's up. Uh, I must conclude, I do so with a simple recap. Psalm 95 and so Cranmer and other reformers teach that we should meet together regularly uh, 
One, to set forth God's most worthy praise. Two, humbly to acknowledge our sins before him and to render thanks for the great benefits we've received at his hands. And three, to hear his most holy word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Reformation and men like Cranmer and many others who were willing to die for their faith in Jesus Christ. We thank you for having Bibles in English through their efforts and the freedoms that uh, are due to the Reformation. Help us today, by your Holy Spirit, to protect those freedoms and above all, to spread the good news of the Bible about Jesus Christ as the only Lord and Saviour, risen, reigning, and one day returning. And we pray this for his name's sake. Amen.